0: Welcome to Monster Complex. I'm Will Christopher, editor of MonsterComplex.com. If you're a monster fan or a monster hunter, then you're in the right place. Monster Complex is devoted to monster fiction in all its forms, from books to movies to TV and other media, from Frankenstein to Godzilla, Buffy to X-Files, Ultraman to Hellboy. Stick around for author interviews, lists, special features, and more. Before we start the interview, I just want to pop in here to read our very first review on iTunes. Quote, a great discussion for writers. The comments about how to maintain a character over time were very useful. The author sounds like a lot of fun to talk to. Thank you, H.J. Carls 3. If you want me to say your name, or username, on a future episode of Monster Complex, post a review on iTunes and I will be sure to thank you on the show. Now for the interview. Matt Cardin is a writer, editor, musician, and also college professor and administrator. With a master's degree in religious studies, he focuses frequently on the intersection of religion, horror, art, and creativity. His works include the weird and cosmic horror fiction collection, To Rouse Leviathan, the overview, Horror Literature Through History, and the book, Mummies Around the World, an encyclopedia of mummies in history, religion, and popular culture. In this interview, Matt and I discuss the relationship between religion and horror, he explains what inspired him to approach these subjects as a scholar, and he distinguishes between horror authors who use religious elements intentionally as opposed to those who just use it as window dressing. You have numerous books, but the one we're going to start with is To Rouse Leviathan, which is an omnibus of your short fiction that explores, quote, the intersection between religion and horror, unquote. Could you unpack that a bit for us?
1: Sure. Um, Since it's an omnibus collection, it does actually include most of the contents of my two previous fiction collections. The first one was Divinations of the Deep, and the second one was Dark Awakenings. And um, eight years separated the first one from the second one, and then uh, nine years separated Dark Awakenings from Two Rows of Leviathan. And uh, as an omnibus exploring the... uh, intersection of religion and horror uh, to rouse Leviathan is a book uh, of uh, weird and cosmic supernatural horror stories that all or almost all skirt that boundary in some way for me uh, horror and religion have always been pretty intimately connected and when I've tried to center in my own news, not just for purposes of writing but for purposes of life in general I found out that I don't just tend to straddle those two areas, supernatural horror and religion and spirituality and related areas like psychology and such. But I find that they uh, they play off each other to the point that it's like they're almost different expressions of the same thing. So when I say the stories into Rouse Leviathan talk about the intersection of religion and horror, what that means is they're both they're they're looking at all of those both of those areas together, sort of as Conjoined on the level of DNA almost. To me, I grew up very religious and I was very interested in religion and took my evangelical Christianity that I was born into seriously. But I also had a natural interest in supernatural horror movies and fiction and so on. And I found out in my adolescence and especially in my beginning of my 20s that what interested me about the one was also what interested me about the other. So that's a preliminary answer. Those stories are, as I say, sort of weird and supernatural. horror stories that are expressions of that intertwined interest in fictional form.
0: Okay, so horror and religion often rub against each other to such an extent that writers in, who think of themselves as this camp or this camp will touch on themes of the other, but you grab onto both of them and embrace them both at the same time. What is it mm-hmm. about the relationship between horror and religion that fascinates you? You know, on the one hand, you have, uh, as you pointed out, they rub up against each other uh, all the time.
1: Like in the the literature and the cinema of of the supernatural, you see them all the time there, right? My interest is uh, probably, in some sense, located right in that term, the supernatural. It's interesting to me. Uh, it took me years to reflect on this and realize kind of what this meant to me. But when you when you say the word the supernatural, some people will automatically think in terms of horror and ghosts and the paranormal and that kind of thing other people uh might instantly think in the direction of religion you know they might think of uh, god and angels and spirits and miracles and that kind of thing and as i say for me it was a twin interest i didn't put them didn't realize i was interested in the same thing in different ways when i was younger but what interests me is the very idea of uh, some sort of transcendental Reality or it's kind of the same interest that makes a lot of people be interested in, in the paranormal or, or ghosts and, and so on that There's just it's a fascination. That's it on one level, but on another level I'm sort of I guess you'd say possessed by a, a really reflective Philosophical temperament and I'm one of those people who's driven to a self-reflection and to trying to understand myself and the world and other people and my relationship to it and understand Why am I here? Where am I headed? what's it all about, you know, what what am I called to do while I'm here, all these basic philosophical orienting questions. It seems to me that horror as a, the, the, the art horror, as Noel Carroll would have called it, not real life horror, you know, not like uh, the, the horror we're experiencing with the pandemic right now, as you and I are doing this interview, uh, but, or, or the horror of, you know, horrible violence between people and so on in real life, but just horror, <clears throat> fiction, cinema, all that kind of stuff, it seems like to me it's, it may be the most direct form of art and entertainment for addressing those levels of transcendental meaning. I think Scott Derrickson actually said that years ago, you know, when he broke out huge in, in, the, in the film world and, and early on made um, uh, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and he gave that famous interview where he said he thought that, that uh, horror might be the genre par excellence for talking about spiritual issues and religious issues that's kind of getting at the heart of what we're talking about here. I'm driven to find those things uh, to be serious, to actually take those issues with gravity. Just like when I said I was raised as an evangelical Christian, I didn't just have it as a cultural thing. I took it seriously. I read my Bible and I took Bible studies seriously and the literature that was provided by the church when i was an adolescent you know i would go home and read it and do the devotions every week and all that kind of thing that stuff seems to me to be intrinsically meaningful and even even for people who abandon it paul Tillich, the great 20th century uh, protestant theologian he talked about uh, he tried to come up with a generic term for to to refer to god that could even be accepted by non-religious people and he's the one uh, that is most prominently associated with originating the term the ground of being, the ground of being. And he also kind of genericized the idea of ultimate and transcendent meanings and so on and so forth by talking about the area of ultimate concern. He said whether people consider themselves to be religious or not, every individual human has some some center of ultimate concern, something that is ultimately existentially meaningful about his or her life regardless of their philosophical or religious positions, and uh, I don't know if I'm accurately getting it, what it is you're asking or what it is that I'm trying to say, but that spoke to me when I first learned about Tillich's articulation of those things in those terms, and to me, I I agree with Derrickson. Horror is actually a way of getting at that area of ultimate concern because of what it deals with, questions of life after death, questions of the meaning of human identity that come out in stories of, say, possession and exorcism. Questions about the uh, the boundaries of moral life and the psychological life, and and of the actual nature of reality. Is there something beyond the physical world? What does it mean to be here? What things threaten us and impinge on our reality? You know, the idea of sort of a boundary between the self and the world strikes me as a, a, a both religious and horrific. You know, Lovecraft, in that famous opening section of his great uh, essay on the history of horror, uh, supernatural horror literature, said that he thought weird fiction was typified by, or that the essence of weird fiction is the sense of uh, unknown dark presences scratching on the outer rim of the universe, you know, and, and horrible intimations of powers about to burst into, your, into the cosmos. That thing can be scaled down to talk about your own personal cosmos you know you you have an inside you're faced with a world that seems to be objective outside your subjectivity and you're trying to figure out what does this all mean this inner world inside me this outer world outside me religion engages on that enormously trying to tell you or to raise the question of who are you what is there ultimately and i think horror does that thing as well lovecraft even famously said that uh, he thought that uh, religious experience and supernatural horror were actually, in, in an experiential sense, somewhat coeval. It's almost like you were talking about the same thing. Again, I didn't find this out until I had already been dealing with this myself uh, for years and years. So it's funny how I can go back to some of my early influences and find out that I probably forgot how they were influencing my way of thinking about this long after I first
0: read it. So as you're demonstrating even now in the interview you you think very deeply about these things and so for those listening you know they should know you have books fiction works where you are dealing in a very scholarly way with the history of horror literature with mummies with the supernatural what inspired you to study and talk about these topics in a scholarly way i might point out that
1: uh, unlike to Rouse leviathan which is all uh, stories which is all ostensibly fiction the uh, the book that preceded it, Dark Awakenings, uh, had uh, one part that was stories, which are all included into Arousal Leviathan as well, and then the second part that are three academic papers or essays. So in that very in that very book, my fusing together of those two categories, fiction and nonfiction, in these thematic areas, is on display. I titled the first section of the book that is stories, and fictions. And if you look at the table of contents, you'll see that the second section that is academic papers is titled Other Fictions. So I tend to always answer questions by quoting other people that have influenced my thinking. At the beginning of Dark Awakenings, I have a section titled Apologia Pro Suo Libro, which means like an explanation or a justification for the book that is before you. And what it is, is a collection of three or four pages worth of excerpts used as epigraphs from other writers. So I have. H.P. Lovecraft, and I have William James from his uh, the Varieties of Religious Experience, and I have even um, Eckhart Tolle in there, you know, the spiritual writer, and I also have uh, a section from a famous uh, essay by Robert Frost where he talks about the difference between poets and scholars, and that can be more generically termed as just artists and scholars, and he's talking about the way poets um, encounter things in life or in literature or other art, and they just kind of go along and don't do a con- a self-conscious analysis of these things. He says it's almost like walking through a field and birds are just sticking to them. They accrue all this stuff, and then their self, their unconscious mulls it over, you know, and stews it, and and uh, comes out as poetry. All all the experiences they've had. Scholars are different in that they self-consciously go along collecting data and information and subjecting whatever it is that they're interested in to a careful, conscious, rational analysis as they then try to carefully, consciously organize it into some statement of it. And my purpose in putting it at the front with all that jumble of other quotations that I deliberately put together in a certain order was to uh, indicate that I'm kind of some of both, I think. And I have viewed myself as being someone who, it's almost like I am poet or artist who approaches the thing in a scholarly manner or else i'm the scholar who approaches the stuff in a poetic or artistic manner for me finding something interesting in a fictional way or a literary way and wanting to express it that way almost isn't different from writing an essay because it's like i'm trying to get at the same thing i find both of those forms to be appropriate vehicles for expressing this desire that's within me to convey this stuff that I'm feeling almost like this vision that I'm having to the other person. And when I, uh, when I called that section of Essays and Dark Awakenings Other Fictions, I do view lots of scholarly writing, my own and other people's, as almost fiction. It's like you're telling a story. And you remember, was, was it, what did Borges say? He said something about um, philosophy being a branch of speculative literature or something like that. It's almost something like that where scholarly things to me are other ways of telling stories and engaging people's emotions as much as their minds to convey the significance of these things. And that's probably the point I'm circling around. There's this gravity. There's this significance to the stuff that we're talking about. And I feel like an encyclopedia on mummies and religion, history, and popular culture or in uh, an, an academic encyclopedia of the paranormal that takes it seriously and, and that actually has articles by... People I commission, like like top scholars in the, who write about ESP and precognition and telepathy and the history of spiritualism and all that, or in an encyclopedia of the history of horror literature that isn't horror stories, but that is trying to comprehensively deal, especially in the U.S. and uh, Europe and the West, with the history of this tradition. There's this emotional charge that's being conveyed by all of that stuff, by the intellectual reflection on it and the knowledge about it as much as by stories of the paranormal or stories and films about mummies or horror stories themselves. Other people may not feel that way, but for me, it's almost like there's no distinction. I guess what's important to me is I'm gripped by this interest in these things and it's as much emotional as it is intellectual and Nonfiction and fiction and scholarly writing and literary writing are both ways that it comes out and that I try to convey something of the charge of that gravity and that depth to people.
0: So if we stick for a moment with the history of the literature, um, when you find religious themes in classic horror novels like Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, like Dracula by Bram Stoker, how much are these classic horror writers actually wrestling with these religious ideas? and How much of it is... They're just using like just the vernacular of their culture.
1: That's actually a very that's a good question. That's a savvy question, you know. And I think I know you asked how much. My initial answer is it plays off something that's implied in your question, which is that they're doing both. Obviously, as far as the proportions between them, I guess I don't even don't even want to answer that. I want to say that I think they are completely doing both at the same time, one hundred percent and one hundred percent. Because when you Speak and think you're obvious. You can't stand outside of time and space and culture and language You know, even someone who has had some kind of transcendent experience that that maybe maybe That's arguable gave them some kind of Experience that was off the grid some kind of insight, you know, uh, some kind of actual religious transcendental vision When they go to say it they're saying it in a language in time in space in a cultural context and I get the sense that while Stoker was completely eaten up with sort of the Victorian sentimental moralism and sexist view of women that you see that gets more more intense progressively through the latter half of the novel with Mina and so on and so forth, that at the same time, he was really seriously emotionally gripped by the uh, religious aspects of what he was talking about. I mean, I don't think he was any any... Intense practicing Christian of any variety himself, uh, but the way he was dealing with those, those Christian moral pronouncements and the way Van the way uh, um, Van Helsing speaks much much more overtly in that Christian moralizing vein as, as the novel goes on, that represents to me, and I could be wrong, but I think that represents part of what Stoker was actually about. It was actually coming forth from an area of real interest and real identity in him. Same thing with Mary Shelley. Um, you know, you could, there's no way you could call her conventionally religious, you know, or the, you know, Percy and Lord Byron and Polidori and the group that, that they all made. But uh, she was actually really interested in those things. And her mother and father were both high intellectuals who were, were not at all conventionally religious on their own, but they, they considered these ideas and their implications for human life to be serious, I think. So she's speaking in the vernacular of. The day and culture including the literary culture when she deals with the idea of god and this and that and the other and brings in uh, paradise lost as such a foundationally important thematic resonance you know comparative text yeah there's that quote at the beginning of the of frankenstein isn't it from uh, it's from uh, paradise lost to you know, something about uh, did i ask thee my maker to conjure me from the clay or something like that she's serious is what i'm saying she's she's both engaging in the literary culture and some of the religious culture of the time And she's seriously raising this as a thematic context in which to explore the idea that she wanted to explore, which was not just, like Elsa Lanchester says, as Mary Shelley at the start of Bride of Frankenstein, uh, a moral lesson about the fate that befell uh, a mortal man who presumed to act as God, or however she said that, but it was more like to look at questions of identity identity and truth and science and nature and human responsibility and what it actually means to be human and to possibly have responsibility over other humans or on a more metaphysical level, what it means to have responsibility over your own creations if you're an artist or something like that. I think she was doing all of the same things all at once, both she and Stoker and others, like, like William Peter Blatty, for example, you know, in The Exorcist. He was both doing something that was interesting to the culture at the time, and he himself was an ardent
0: Catholic who was trying to make a statement. So you said, it, talking about Frankenstein again for a second, you said in an interview that the original novel, uh, has never, there's never been a definitive film, although you gave high marks to, of all people, Hallmark for making a good run at it. Why do you think it's so hard for anyone to get it right?
1: I don't have a good answer to that because I have wondered that myself. I've seen a number of productions that I had high hopes for, like before I ever saw Kenneth Brownow's Frankenstein, which is what you really should call it, instead of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? Just like Brown um, Stoker's Dracula is actually Francis Coppola's Dracula, you know? I don't know why it's so hard to draw a good Frankenstein-perfect manifestation out of cinema. Um, something it's probably has something to do with the fact that there are aspects of the novel that are foundational to its effect. They are central to the way it works and have always been part of why it's been such a powerful and now iconic mythic nexus of cultural power, you know, that are purely literary. I mean, it has a frame structure. We know that, right? It has a frame narrative structure. You start off with Captain Walton in the Arctic. And he meets victor frankenstein out there and then it becomes the story of his life victor's life that victor is telling captain walton but in the middle of victor's story you get another frame narrative where it is the monster telling his story to victor after victor had first brought him to life and then abandoned him and then in the middle of the monster story you have nested at the center of this russian doll structure The story of the DeLacy family, the family that the monster uh, met and was educated by without their knowing it when he lived in the the shed attached to their cottage, those poor folks who had been exiled from their native country. And you learn for a few pages about their history, how they got to be there. And then it backs out to the monster talking to Victor. And then his story ends and it backs out to Victor dealing with all this. And then it backs out again to Captain Walton. And that's hard to pull off. In cinematic form and th- th- a few of the cinematic adaptations have of course put the captain walton aspect in in that hallmark frankenstein miniseries it was actually donald sutherland who played walton you know and in uh kenneth brownells what's the guy's name i like him a lot i like the actor um aiden quinn actually played walton and there's been a couple of others that had like the, the one where randy quaid played the monster the tv miniseries you know i think maybe it had a captain walton so they have a wraparound frame there to put four layers deep i don't think so and there's there's it's not just the fact of creating the four layer uh, sort of nested structure it's the fact of how it works when you're interfacing with it as a written text and the way it can play off each other on those different levels that creates an experience that is really difficult to duplicate on film and then one, I could also look at the fact, just I, I could point out the flaws, maybe you probably could too, in any of the film adaptations where they fall short, kind of like how Brownells is a great collection of set pieces. I mean, seen in pieces, you could look at it and go, oh my God, this is one of the best monster movies, you know, one of the best horror movies ever made. But the whole thing loses its way and is deeply, narratively unsatisfying. There are a couple of needles scratching off the record moments as you get later in the film. So they have some inherent errors, but the novel in some way may just resist being perfect. I think someone's going to have to approach it someday, like um, David Cronenberg said he approached making his film version of Naked Lunch. Did you ever see that? You know, William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, one of the classic mid-20th century novels from the beats, from the Beat Generation. Cronenberg said... In interviews, and, and he, he, he was in contact with Burroughs. I mean, Burroughs even came on the set. You know, I remember reading in Cine Fantastica* an interview with Cronenberg, and there's a picture of him and Burroughs there together. But Cronenberg was very savvy about it and said, I'm not trying to make a film adaptation of Naked Lunch because that would be impossible for a novel like that. He said, What I'm trying to do is kind of go back to the source of what that novel is in its essence and express it as a film in a way uh, uh, that shows what it would have been if it originally were a film. So we're not trying to translate the novel to film. We're trying to re-manifest its basic thrust in cinematic form. Someone's going to have to do that with Frankenstein at some point, and I'm sure some of the filmmakers have tried to do that, but so far, uh, no clear successes.
0: So coming back to current horror literature would you say that it is fair to imagine that many authors today who touch on religious themes are really just using those themes as religious uh, as window dressing simply because they grew up with that was part of that was part of the experience they grew up with they don't really they aren't intentionally dealing with those themes
1: I don't want to name any names Uh, and in fact in some cases I've forgotten the names but I have read some things mainly short fiction and it was mainly back in the in the aughts I think Um, I have read some stories where it did seem like there was sort of a shallow and maybe ham-fisted attempt to bring in religious issues and it seemed clear to me uh, and and some of these stories were in association with an anthology that I was then editing uh, as a co-editor with T.M. Wright and it never came out it was titled. Uh, it was going to be titled "Holy Horrors," and I've had thoughts about resurrecting this. It had a great. We, we put together a two-volume table of contents, and it was going to be an anthology of horror stories all centering in the area of religion. Might see if I could still pull this off at some point. Although Terry is is gone now, but uh, it did s- some of the submissions that we ended up rejecting. You know, and and, and then a few published pieces I have read. Again, I won't name names. Have uh, seemed like they're pretty clumsily dealing with it and many times i think unself-consciousness is good because you can adopt an affected pose that sounds false when you're too too self-consciously trying to do something in any form of art or literature you know but i'm talking about ones that it seemed like it was rather immature it would be like people were bringing in the name of jesus or they were bringing in um religious iconography or certain conventions having to do with vampires and religions crosses or whatnot that it was clear they hadn't thought this through. They were just being programmed by a bunch of movies that they had seen. And that's really where I tend to see the shallowness come in, is when people haven't thoroughly enough uh, educated themselves in the literary tradition that comes before, and almost everything they've learned about horror, including the presence of religious iconography or ideas, comes from film and television. At that point, I think it hasn't been very deeply engaged for some writers or wannabe writers, and they just sort of toss it in there because it seems like what it's supposed to do. They have some further growth to do, I think, before they could produce fiction that would represent a substantial contribution to this fictional conversation.
0: Would you be able to name any authors who are doing a good job, who they are intentional and they are also doing it in a very organic and appropriate manner?
1: Um, and you asked me that question, You know, you let me know ahead of time you'd be asking that question and I had a hard time coming up with anything. <laughs> I'm sure there are, to me, it seems like a lot of where this is happening is in areas that aren't even mentioning conventional religion very overtly, and it would be in the field of weird fiction, which, as you know, has been explosively ascendant in a way that I think hasn't happened in mainstream literary culture ever, Uh, but for the past, what, 18 years, like since the 20 years, maybe, since the dawn of the 21st century, uh, has become an object of mainstream fascination, now crossing over into high-quality cinema, dealing with those things in a way it hadn't before. Um, but, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the writings of Richard Gavin or uh, Simon Stranzas, two um, Canadian writers of uh, horror fiction who are sometimes sometimes to some extent associated with the Ligotti crowd, you know. Um, they deal with some issues that either are directly or or with crossover value can be considered religious because they're writing real weird horror fiction the type that that that, that disturbs the universe you know that probes the boundaries of reality and, and it deals with uh, what uh, they are tales of what um david hartwell in his famous classic introduction to uh the dark descent you know his his genre defining horror anthology called um a fabulous formless darkness which is itself a quotation from someone else. He identified three streams of horror fiction. The first is what he called a moral horror fiction, which basically just deals with the the threat of some monster or force that upsets the conventional order, and the horror is that and trying to reestablish. And then psychological horror, which is pretty much understandable when you say the word, right? And then uh, sort of these tales of a fabulous formless darkness, tales about disturbances to the order of reality, and the horror comes from sensing this breakdown in things that's where weird fiction comes in and super and, and that kind of weird supernatural fiction comes in um, so Richard and Simon are two people doing that obviously Thomas Lagatti is doing that John Paget is doing that um, Laird Baron you know in his more overt uh, overtly uh, supernatural horror type writings is doing that I could name a number of other people but I'll just name those and stop there but it, it, it's still there the, the, the religious religious aspect of horror i'm probably missing some obvious ones Uh, maurice broadest is an interesting one are you familiar with maurice he is um a horror writer and also a a christian minister and so i don't know if he still does this for a while he sort of joked and he, he, he gave himself the tagline the sinister minister but he's written some stories where his actual religious center is coming out in his fiction and he's writing some dark fantasy now not just horror and um Joe Nassiz was the president of the Horror Writers Association for a while, and, you know, he, um, he is, uh, last I knew, uh, practicing uh, Baptist, Southern Baptist, and has put those horror themes right into his, right into his stories, and, and some dark fantasy and horror stories, so it's, it's happening, and it's interesting. I think a lot of where the, some of the especially interesting stuff that's prominent these days is happening is actually in horror cinema. So when you look at something like Midsummer, you know, it, it's, what, is, what is not there? You know, it's, it's, it's this brilliantly made film that is also horrific in a very profound sense and deals with the religious cult and traverses lots of that same folk horror territory that the Wicker Man staked out so long ago. There's an interesting cinematic eruption of these things too it's, it's something to pay attention to all these things that have been driving me for so long and especially the religion the horror nexus seem like they've suddenly come into their own as objects of widespread focus and it's a very heady time to be alive
0: There's so many <laughs> tangents I could go off on based on what you're saying but um, I, I will say some of the stuff you've mentioned uh, I, I, I am too disturbed by horror that it is bad people doing bad things because it's too plausible i i need the arm's length of oh that could never happen or or it's, it's it, it affects me too deeply i understand that um
1: i and i've i've actually who was that recently somebody said to me in conversation that same thing they were saying they can't watch things like criminal minds uh that it has to be um supernatural horror you know which which could quote unquote never happen and then of course I want to direct them to my paranormal encyclopedia and talk about the weird, wacky, demonic realm that that's that's actually perhaps not just real, but ontologically more real than this three-dimensional uh, universe in space, time, and extension that we're living in right now. So, but I, I know that I know that I, I'm aware that some people say no, no, that's too close to home. And there are people who have actually had awful things happen to them. There's a lot of people walking around who have had conventionally horrible things happen to them. And they might still be able to enjoy supernatural horror fiction, but to deal with fictional depictions of those things is
0: just too much. One has to one has to respect that. So another facet to your art is that you are a a musician. And reading one of your previous interviews, I was amused to discover your music interests as a child were sparked by similar ideas is that sparked your literary interests. So my question is, are all your artistic endeavors spokes in the same wheel, or are you expressing different ideas in each art form? I
1: can, I can answer that question rather succinctly by telling you a story. I started playing the piano when I was eight. I had been just longing to take piano lessons before that, but two of my cousins were, and I was jealous. Um, they don't play the piano anymore. I took to it like some duck that had never seen water until it was eight years old, you know, and there it is, and I've played the piano seriously for the rest of my life. I started composing music in high school with an analog keyboard and a little analog four-track recorder, and then in college, I did that too. Um, After college, uh, some years afterwards, I went to work for a piano and keyboard store selling gear for them, and I got on wholesale prices a Yamaha professional keyboard and some recording equipment, you know, a mixer and all that. And suddenly, without my intending it, my music composing came back, and I spent two years with this music kind of pouring out of me as a total obsession. And another couple of years mastering it and putting it together. And I have an album. It's titled uh, Curse of the Daimon. And the musical project, which is one album long itself, like the band was just one man musical thing, was called "Demonic's" D-A-E-M-O-N-Y-X. So demon and onyx, you know, darkness and the demon. And it wasn't until after I had done all that, just as this spontaneous extended three, four year long burst of driven, obsessive compulsive musical creativity that I actually totally consciously realized I had a little bit before but totally consciously realized that it was overlapping at every thematic point every thematic point with the the mood of the music and the lyrics such as they are because I, I created entire sets of lyrics out of sound bites and musical things rhythmically and movie type things put in there rhythmically. Uh, With the uh, stories that I was writing, and in fact, when I showed it to David Wynn, the uh, proprietor of Mythos Books, who published Dark Awakenings, and said, Hey, I noticed that this thing is uh, pretty much crossing over at every point. Uh, He said, yeah, awesome, and he published the album with the book. Didn't know that I was doing a two-pronged thing, but basically anybody who bought the book directly from the publisher also got a copy of the album. So the answer is yes, and I have that concrete
0: example to demonstrate it. <laughs> that's that's funny. That it, it ended up becoming a package that you didn't you you didn't plan on it. Didn't know what I was
1: doing, and that's a big thing with me. These sort of meta patterns. Um, one of my favorite essays ever is William Stafford's "A Way of Writing," and William Stafford is a renowned American poet. Was a renowned American poet, and in a way of writing, I, I love books on creativity anyway, and I wrote my own book on creativity its titled a course in demonic creativity subtitled a writer's guide to the inner genius and it's a free pdf available online i published it 9 years ago and it's like i lost track of how many downloads but it's you know 15000 downloads of a free book by now 20000 whatever i quote stafford in that book i love books on creativity so i and especially inspired creativity stafford Mentioned and this is this relates to uh, Robert Frost's point about poets not really consciously gathering material artists just Osmotically having things come into their lives and then later they they come together He said that he 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 emphasized trusting the coherence of your deep self um, not Consciously trying to do something he talked he said every morning he would get up early He made instant coffee every morning before the family was up and sat down to just see what happened as a poet His recommendation was lower your standards That's the only way to do things consistently. Success counts as the lowest possible common denominator. Don't care about quality. Doing anything counts as success. Over time, successes rack up. And then he said he noticed this incredible gift occurs, this incredible thing over time. He looks back over what he's done, and there's this coherence that is emerging out of it that he didn't see at the time because it's the coherence of his core self as it just expresses itself in the middle of the moment. And that's what's happened to me with my various projects. I've tried to tap into the demon muse that is my inner collaborative partner. And it just seems like it produces patterns over time that I can't see until it's in retrospect. And I kind of look at it in a, on a meta level.
0: So this next question you may, have, you may feel like you've already answered uh, because you did name off a number of authors earlier. But who would you recommend as essential writers or works? The hor- religion
1: and horror, that kind of thing, right? Uh, they can't go wrong by going to Rudolf Otto's *The Idea of the Holy*. You know, he is—he's a, 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 a an iconic presence in the field. He's someone whose whose scholarly presence in the world of religious studies um, is established. And he wrote in the early 20th century. He was a German scholar in in the field of Gothic and horror studies. He's also well established because he's the guy that the I, I think he coined the term *the numinous* meaning something that is spiritual and and mesmerizing and uncanny and so on and he was the one who most famously developed uh, a theory that uh, that the original religious impulse in humans and the original appearance of religious practice arose out of a sense of what he called demonic dread that this this dread at the sense of this impinging presence Around And there may be spiritual reasons for that, or one could have a reductionistic psychological reading of that. He thought that dread and religion were born together. And then he, he viewed uh, the, the development of what he called in the vernacular of his day, the higher religions, as being the, uh, the more proper outworking of those things. But he viewed a, a rather degraded version of the way that had come down in history as being the ghost story. So he viewed actually the origin. He actually commented in this classic work on the origins of what today we would call horror fiction, and uh, the origins of religion, and said so they basically both come from the same primal human experience. So you cannot go wrong reading Rudolf Otto's The Idea of the Holy. I personally think the writings of uh, Thomas Ligotti, which some people wouldn't view necessarily as religious, even though he does talk about strange religious cults and so on, as being primary in this area. If you can stomach it emotionally and philosophically speaking because some people can't they find themselves too dismayed or appalled by it there's a non-fiction book the conspiracy against the human race might be an interesting way to go there any of those writers i named earlier you know uh and, and the whole field of weird fiction that's outright that, that's that's burgeoning right now probably has some good stuff to do with that non-fiction books that deal specifically with the religion horror nexus there's a really cool book by um uh, a man named Edward Ingebretson. Edward Ingebretson. And he was a, uh, I think he's still alive, uh, not only a literary scholar, but a Jesuit priest. And the book is titled, let me see if I can get this right. Um, I have it on my shelf back here. Let me grab it. Hold on. Maps of Heaven, Maps of Hell, Religious Terror as Memory from the Puritans to Stephen King. And he is trying to show how... uh, to demonstrate through literature uh, how the idea of religious terror is just encoded in the American character, in the American genetic material from the time of the colonists all the way to the present. And he shows how it comes out in the literary tradition. He has a really fascinating chapter where his whole point in that chapter is sort of a combined look at the writings of Lovecraft and Robert Frost. So there's Frost again <laughs> that keeps coming up with me. Let me think if there are any other nonfiction books I would recommend by Noel Carroll. The philosophy of horror is an interesting one that deals with uh, some of these spiritual and religious issues. And um, there's a book by Timothy Beale, who's a religion scholar that I highly recommend. It's titled religion and its monsters came out just a few years ago. It's fairly compact, but it's deeply profound. And it is another one of those things that, that examines the field of horror and he looks at both literary and cinematic horror and tries to do and successfully does what i've been talking about uh, he reads both of them as if it's the same thing looked at through a different lens and tries to show how religion and then cinematic and literary horror both mutually illuminate each other and that's probably right there uh, the most compact way to say it's maybe to to answer a question you were asking earlier. You know, what is it that, what is it that uh, I find interesting? What draws me to, to this fusion or this intersection of the two? It's because I, they, they mutually illuminate each other, I think. And that's both just intellectually and also for me in terms of personal religious experience and emotional leaning. What are the best ways for readers to connect with you online? I have a uh, website. My author website is just mattcardin.com. And I'm on Twitter, underscore Matt Carden. And uh, I have a blog titled The Teeming Brain. And I chose that title. The Teeming Brain. The Teeming Brain. I chose the title from the famous poem, Isn't It Keats, who talked about his fears uh, that he might die before his pen had gleaned his teeming brain. And uh, I guess the, that, that in terms of blogs' lifespans, that one's approaching venerable by now. I launched it in 2006. And it's been an on-again, off-again thing. It's had periods of huge activity and then periods of going dormant and so on. But Teeming Brain is a good place to go if you want to see a several-year record of my interest in and my dealings with these things um, and other things. On the blog, I track not just uh, religion and horror, but like apocalyptic and dystopian trends in society at large, education, technology, culture,
0: politics, that kind of thing. Well, Matt Cardin, thank you very much for joining us at Monster Complex. I very much appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Monster Complex. Become a Monster Complex member. Find out how to join our family at patreon.com slash monstercomplex. Subscribe to our free online magazine at monstercomplex.com. I'm Will Christopher. We'll see you again for the next episode of Monster Complex.